Thank you for tuning in to the Liberty Church Online Podcast. This is Pastor Andrew, and whether you're listening in the car or at the gym, or maybe just sitting down with a cup of coffee and an open Bible in front of you, we hope that through this message, God will meet you right where you are and help you grow in your personal relationship with Him. So let's jump right into this week's study of God's Word together. after chapter, we're uh, witnessing these dramatic uh, expressions of God's power. Um, and that, today's no exception. We're going to look at another one today. But just by way of review, uh, Daniel was just a teenager when uh, Israel, God's people, were conquered by Babylon. And uh, he was taken as a slave, a captive, 900 miles across the desert and uh, into this pagan culture, you know, just godless, idol-worshiping, immoral culture. And Daniel is a God-fearing person. And He's wanting to live out his faith in this pagan land, and so we're learning some lessons about standing firm in a compromising culture. That's the title of our series. And what the Babylonians found is that they could take Daniel away from Israel, but they could not take Daniel away from the God of Israel, uh, because right there in the heart of Babylon, Daniel stood firm and honored his convictions, and probably next Sunday is going to be the greatest example of that in that famous account of Daniel in the lion's den. We'll look at that in chapter 6. But it's a challenge to us. Daniel has, uh, you know, he's a great example for us because our culture, compromised, spiritually dark, we see signs of that all over the place. And God is looking for people like Daniel in the 21st century, you know, who love the Lord and want to honor the Lord and we're willing to stand firm for the Lord, even when it's going against the grain of our culture. And so we come to Daniel chapter 5 today, and uh, Daniel has lived quite a life, but we come to chapter 5, and most scholars believe he's about 80 years old at the time. So he is advanced in years, no, no more teenager, you know, back when we started, you know, last month, no more teenager, now he's grown, and, and what we've seen is that because he's honored the Lord, God has given Daniel tremendous influence um, with other people, with lost people. To the degree that last Sunday, if you recall, if you were with us, last Sunday, through Daniel's influence, the wicked pagan king Nebuchadnezzar, um, actually, we believe, came to know the Lord, bowed his knee to the Lord, and looked up to heaven, and uh, just an amazing testimony of what God can do through a person like Daniel. Um, So God's called us to follow that example. But now we get to chapter 5, and it's about 20 years have passed since chapter 4. Daniel, again, is advanced in years. Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. He's passed off the scene. And the person in charge of Babylon now is named in Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, King Belshazzar. What we're going to find is that King Belshazzar was actually one of Nebuchadnezzar's grandsons. And Belshazzar was historically the last king of Babylon because uh, by the time we get to chapter 6, Babylon is no more. The last verse of chapter 5, we see the, uh, the conquer of Babylon by the Medes and the Persians. Um, so we're going to talk about that this morning. But uh, before we look at the lessons God has for us in this chapter, I just want to highlight something um, about King Belshazzar um, because God's got some lessons for us through his life, but it's a very unique chapter, and some of you may know this, but for years, really for decades, in like state schools or secular universities, you know, if you'd go to college at a 
university like that, they would typically have a, like a religion 101 class or a Bible 101 class. And um, it's typically liberal professors who are kind of pushing this narrative that, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of legends and it's just full of fanciful tales that people made up. You can't really, you can't really trust it. It's got all kinds of historical inaccuracies. And for years, those liberal uh, scholars and institutions would turn to the book of Daniel to make their case. I don't know, did you know that? Because we've seen already, the first six chapters of Daniel have all kinds of historical references, that names and places. So it's very easy to check against the uh, archaeological or the historical record. And so a lot of times these you know, liberal professors would, would come to Daniel and say, yeah, this is proof that you, know, you can't trust the Bible. All kinds of inaccuracies. To the degree, I read this book in seminary. It's probably still in print. There's a book out by apologist Josh McDowell called Daniel in the Critic's Den. Okay, so I mean, you get just so much, you know, criticism. Um, Daniel in the critics' den, you know, and he, and he kind of walks through the historicity, um, the authenticity and accuracy of Daniel. And again, I bring that up this morning because, of, as an example, here in Daniel chapter 5, this reference in verse 1 to King Belshazzar, um, because uh, the archaeological record and the historical record for centuries revealed that Belshazzar wasn't the last king of Babylon. The last king of Babylon was this guy named Nabonidus. In fact, Belshazzar wasn't mentioned anywhere. And yet here in Daniel, it says that Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon. And so these skeptics of the Bible would say, see, there you have it. You know, you, know, you can't trust this stuff. You know, it's just a bunch of legends. You know, these people were not historians. They didn't know what they were talking about. It says Belshazzar was the king, and Belshazzar's not mentioned anywhere outside the book of Daniel. We know it was Nabonidus. But then a series of archaeological digs took place, it's around the turn of the 18th to the 19th century, and, and in those archaeological digs, uh, they discovered what are now called the cylinders of Nabonidus, the cylinders of Nabonidus. And in those cylinders are inscriptions and archaeological records that sort of fill in the gaps of history. And from the cylinders of Nabonidus, what is found is that Nabonidus indeed was the last king of Babylon, but he was more of an absentee king. He didn't like the big city. He, he spent 10 of his 17-year reign, 10 years in Arabia on vacation. That's, he, didn't like, he didn't like to stick around in Babylon. And what the cylinders of Nabonidus reveal is that when Nabonidus was away from the kingdom of Babylon, he would put his son in charge as sort of a co-regent whose name was Belshazzar. <laughs> Belshazzar. So, so once again, you know, the Bible is proved right. Sometimes history just needs to catch up with God's word, okay? So our knowledge is so limited, we don't know everything. And so, you know, these liberal scholars, they got to slow down sometimes on saying, yeah, there you go, you can't trust it. Well, just give it enough time, and time after time you see these accounts uh, in the Bible confirmed by history that we discover. Um, and by the way, it explains why, we'll see this in a moment, uh, in verse 7, that when, you know, Belshazzar, the king, the co-regent, Belshazzar, he says, hey, somebody, anybody who helps me out, I'm going to make them the third highest person in the kingdom. 
because the third highest was as high as they could go, because you had Nabonidus, who's on vacation all the time, and then Belshazzar. So he says, I can give you the third position because the first two are already filled. Uh, so God's word is proved right and accurate and true. Um, we can trust it. I just, you know, Daniel used to get so much, so much grief, but year after year, century after century, uh, what he says, what is written in the book of Daniel is confirmed. The, the history, the, the ancient historian knew a lot more about the modern historians about authenticity. Well, here in Daniel chapter 5, again, we find the fall of Babylon. And this seemingly impenetrable um, fortress in the desert we've been talking about. Remember from week one, Babylon had walls that were 300 feet high, 80 feet thick. And man, to walk into that place, you think, no way this thing is ever going down. But uh, by the end of chapter 5, it's over for Babylon. And it's just a reminder to us that we've been seeing that Hey, God raises up earthly kingdoms for his purposes, and he knocks them down for his purposes. God raised up Babylon for a season. It served his purposes, and then he knocked it down. God determines those things, and it's good evidence uh, of that principle here in Daniel 5. When, your time is, when God says your time is up, it's up. It's over. And uh, that's what transpires here in these verses. Let's take a look at verse 1. Starting there in Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now it says there that King Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father, but the Hebrew word for father, same word for ancestor, he's really... Um, Nebuchadnezzar is really his grandfather, okay, his ancestor. Uh, verse 3 says, So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem, and the king and its, his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So you kind of get the picture here. Uh, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, he's throwing this big party, and everybody who is somebody is in attendance. You know, a thousand people. He's got his wives and his concubines, which probably made for some interesting dinner conversation when you think about it. But those people were so weird back then anyway. So, so he's got all the muckety-mucks of Babylon, and they're, they're throwing this big party, and there's all kinds of pagan revelry going on, to be sure. But in addition to all that pagan revelry, Belshazzar decides to introduce some, man, in-your-face blasphemy, right? Did you see that? Belshazzar's like, hey, you remember when we conquered you know, Jerusalem way back then? We got those nice cups from the temple that were sacred unto their God. And you know, where's their God now? I mean, look at that. Babylon, is, and, you know, nobody's ever going to conquer us. So why don't, you, why don't you bring those old sacred things out, and we're going to drink a toast to our false gods by using these goblets from the temple in Jerusalem. Really just kind of a high-handed, in-your-face blasphemy before God. But as the party is going on, something happens. And candidly, it sounds like something out of an old horror movie, really. And those of you who know this, have read this chapter, you know what happens. If you're new to the Bible and you've never read Daniel chapter 
5. It is a bizarre, in some ways creepy, account. Um, so they're having this party, and look what it says in verse 5. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Okay. So, are you, are you envisioning this scene here? Oh, they're having a party, man. I mean, they're, they're having a big party and all kinds of noise and revelry and blasphemy is going on. Everybody's having a great time and the band is playing, the music is loud. And then the band goes into what I imagine some Stevie Wonder. Very superstitious. Riding on the wall. You know, you know that song, right? So the band goes into Stevie Wonder, and then this severed hand, how I imagine it, kind of crawls across the floor, <laughs> up the wall. And don't you love to read the Bible in color like that, by the way, right? Uh, uh, and, and it just starts writing this, this message. Um, wow. But, but here's the thing. It's not superstitious. It's not Hollywood. It's actually happening right before King Belshazzar's eyes. This is, it's really happening. And I, I would imagine that uh, uh, Belshazzar, you know, he's thinking, am I really seeing this? I mean, I've been throwing him back pretty quick, you know. I, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I'm seeing things that aren't really there, but then it sinks in. No, no. That's really a hand up there on the wall writing this message. So, understandably, verse um, 6 says, His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak, and his knees were knocking. Uh, he's terrified at what he's seeing unfold before his very eyes. And, you know, this, of course, uh, the handwriting on the wall is where we get that idiom in our language, right? We, we say that. Oh, I, I, I'm starting to see the handwriting on the wall. When we say that, we're typically talking about something ominous, maybe something that hasn't been overtly stated, but we know it's coming, right? It's like, like okay, I, I see the handwriting on the wall. That's why we use that figurative term, and that comes from this literal uh, event here in Daniel 5. And what this is is a unique manifestation of God. And God is uniquely, and we don't know if this has ever been done before or since, God is uniquely giving a message, not only determining the destiny of Belshazzar, but determining the destiny of the entire Babylonian empire. And look what it says in verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. There's that reference to the third highest. Uh, verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in. But surprise, surprise, if you've been with us in this series, they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. I mean, the wise men of Babylon are the most pathetic group, aren't they? I mean, every time they show up, hey, help me with this dream. Hey, what's the wall say? It's like, I don't know. They just, they're just so incompetent. Um, 
So they can't help. So the king, so as a result of that, verse 9, King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. And so they can't read the handwriting on the wall. They, They can't figure it out. But he wants to know. And then we won't read the whole passage, but the queen actually steps in and says to the king, hey, there's this guy, Daniel. You know, probably by this time in Babylon, Daniel is of legendary status. I mean, he's 80-some years old. He's been there his whole life. So people have heard of Daniel. The queen says, there's this Daniel. Okay, why don't we find him here in Babylon? Let's bring him in, and maybe he can make some sense of this inscription on the wall. And so that's what they do. They find Daniel, and Daniel's brought before Belshazzar. And uh, here's what Belshazzar says to him. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else, okay? He's 80 years old. He doesn't really care about climbing the ladder at this point. He's on Social Security, all right? He's probably retired from his, you know, thing. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not interested. Give it to somebody else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. So this human hand wrote on the wall four different Aramaic words that you see in verse 25, This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Now, Mene is repeated for emphasis, and it just means numbered. Uh, Tekel means to weigh, and Parson is the Aramaic word for divided, to be divided. And verse uh, 26, here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And verse 28, Perez, which is uh, the singular form of parson. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so this is the handwriting on the wall. This is God's message to Belshazzar. He says, uh, Belshazzar, your days are numbered. Your days are numbered. He says, your heart has been weighed and it's found lacking. You're not living up to my expectations. And God says, as a result, your kingdom is going to be divided between the Medes and the Persians. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because throughout this series, we've been talking about how impressive Babylon was. Remember, man, from last month, these kids arrived 900 miles from Israel, and they see the mighty walls of Babylon. And to see it in that day, you would think it was impenetrable. How in the world could this kingdom ever be conquered? That was the thought common among people of that day. And I mentioned back uh, in, earlier in the series, I mentioned that one of the things that uh, the Babylonian engineers did, really under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar, because he was really sort of a brilliant guy, was to reroute the Euphrates River. And so they rerouted the Euphrates River so it went around the city to form a kind of a protective moat around the city. But not only that, but they ran it through the city, not only to provide fresh water for people in the city, but to kind of have a scenic, you know, uh, greenway there through the, just making the city more beautiful. But history records what the Medes and the Persians did. And this isn't in the Bible, but it's in secular history, 
History records what the Medes and the Persians did was they dammed up the Euphrates River about a mile and a half upstream. And as, it, as the river dried out, the armies of the Medes and Persians just walked right in underneath the mighty gates of Babylon and literally conquered the city from the inside out. And you see that's what happened in verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So, uh, <laughs> wow. Here today and gone tomorrow, man. Babylon was impressive in its day, but it's gone. Well, you know, we've been reading these accounts throughout Daniel, these first chapters in Daniel, and it seems like every week it's something new, Right? I mean, you got the fiery furnace. Next week, we've got the lion's den. We've got the handwriting on the wall. I mean, all these accounts that are so captivating and interesting and enjoyable, I think, to read. And this is a great, it's a great story. It's a great account. But we know that God doesn't put these things in the Bible just to entertain us. God puts these things in the Bible and has gone to great lengths to preserve them for centuries to teach us some things, right? There are some lessons for the... 21st century person from this text, that, these events that took place over 2,500 years ago. And so let's spend the balance of our time this morning uh, kind of bringing it to our life, okay? And, and I want to present it like this, the handwriting on the wall to us, all right? Two timeless warnings. And these are, these are two things that come from what Daniel said to Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar's situation, different than our, but listen, these warnings are timeless for each and every person, no matter who you are, what your background is, what your history, what era in which you live, these warnings are warnings that you and I need to heed. Because, uh, you know, Daniel doesn't just pronounce judgment. Daniel, in these verses that we're going to read, he kind of explains why. Here's why this is happening to you, Belshazzar. And so they can also serve as warnings to you and to me. Look at verse 18. Daniel speaking to Belshazzar, Your majesty, the Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Skip down to verse 20. It says, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. And then in verse 21, Daniel recounts last Sunday's sermon, actually. We talked about that. How, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was puffed up with pride. Look at this great Babylon that I've created for my own glory. And what did God do? God struck him with insanity. And Nebuchadnezzar became like a cow in the field, right? They put him out to pasture. You know, they removed him from the palace. And he's out there grazing. And you remember we talked about that last Sunday. How his hair became long and matted like feathers of a bird. And his, he didn't cut his nails. And he became claw. He went insane for a season. And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar turned his eyes toward heaven and was restored, and God healed him of that, and, and we believe, you know, he, he gave God the glory for that. So that's verse 21, but the, but the indictment on Belshazzar is found in verse 22, because look what it says. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humble, humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You knew all this. Daniel's message is, Belshazzar, your grandfather, he reached the pinnacle of success just like you. And he was proud just like you. 
But God humbled him. God broke him. And eventually, your grandfather, he bowed his knees to the Lord. He looked to heaven and worshiped the Lord. But you've never come to that point. And here's the thing, Belshazzar. You knew all this. You knew the stories about Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps Belshazzar was even alive to witness what happened to his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel says, that is an indictment upon you because you had some opportunities. You've had some testimonies from your past. You've had some heritage. Nebuchadnezzar was an example for you. You knew what happened to him. You knew how God broke him and then restored him, and yet you still choose to reject and blaspheme the Lord. His indictment was, you knew. You knew. And so the warning for you and I is just so um, important and sobering, and it's this. The greater knowledge God gives you, the more accountable he holds you. Did you see that? I mean, the more you know about the Lord, the more opportunities God has given you, the more light, spiritual light that God has brought into your life, the more accountable he will hold you as to how you respond to that light. Think about it. Nebuchadnezzar, remember old King Nebuchadnezzar, he was born in a pagan land. He was born to heathen parents. He was raised in godless Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, his whole life, when he was king, he was just going about being a pagan, godless, idol-worshiping king. That's what he was, he didn't know anything else. And then God, in his mercy and grace, brought Daniel and some others into his life, godly people into his life. And it took some time, but eventually Nebuchadnezzar, he was exposed to this light, and he lived up to that light after some, you know, judgment from God, and he ended up responding and getting more light and ended up praising the Lord and, again, bowing his knee and looking to heaven for help. But Belshazzar, on the other hand, he had that story, he had that testimony, he had that history, and yet he didn't respond. He didn't repent. And so he was destroyed. And um, you remember, we, last Sunday we talked about how God pursued Nebuchadnezzar over 30 years. Right? He, he brought Daniel into his life, brought some other people into his life. and Over 30 years, God was pursuing a relationship with Nebuchadnezzar. It took that long. But eventually, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he turned to the Lord. God pursued him for over 30 years. Even after the interpretation of that dream, remember from chapter 4, um, Daniel interpreted the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, and then God gave him another 12 months before he actually inflicted the punishment upon him, and he went insane. It said 12 months later, he had 12 months to maybe turn, maybe repent. But did you notice in this account, that's not what God does. God issues the warning, he issues the verdict, and what does it say? That very night, Belshazzar, taken down and the kingdom crumbles. Well, why did he give Nebuchadnezzar a year plus, and he gave, and he gave Belshazzar, you know, hours before it happened? Why is that? Was, was uh, Belshazzar that much more wicked than Nebuchadnezzar? I don't think so. Here's what I believe. What Daniel says, Belshazzar, you knew what happened to him. You had the light. You saw the example. You've heard the stories. 
You saw what God did in Nebuchadnezzar's case. And yet here you are, thumbing your nose at God, blaspheming him as if you didn't know anything. But you did. Daniel's indictment is, the greater knowledge God gives you, the more accountable he holds you. You knew all these things, and you still did not respond. And, you know, I think about our lives and, you know, our situation. God, for purposes only he knows, he doesn't give everyone the same amount of light. You know, he doesn't give everyone the same amount of exposure to him. Some of you were uh, born into Christian families, and you had a mom and a dad who loved God and served God, and they loved you enough to teach you about God and bring you to church and share the gospel of Jesus with you. And hey, that's a lot of light. That's a lot of light. Hey, if, if your parents or your grandparents raised you that way, then you should just thank the Lord and praise the Lord. He has given you a lot of light. But along with that light, along with that knowledge, comes a greater sense of accountability and responsibility, right? That's the lesson here. You heard the stories. You, you heard the testimonies. And, and with, that, with that exposure comes greater responsibility. Some of you, uh, you know, you, uh, you, you, weren't, you, weren't, you didn't have that light. You know, you, you didn't know the Lord. Maybe you weren't raised in that environment. Maybe you're a first-generation follower of Jesus. Somewhere along the line, God brought some Daniel into your life. You know, somebody into your life who encouraged you or witnessed to you and brought you to church or, or something like that. Because here you are today, you know, seeking to grow in your faith. So even though you didn't have the, all the benefits of being in a Christian home or exposure at that early age, here you are. God brought somebody into your life, gave you some light, and you lived up to that light, and you're worshiping the Lord today. It doesn't really matter how much light you're given. What matters is that you and I live up to the light that we have. And when we live up to the light that we have, God gives us more light. That's just, that's just how it works. You know, Belshazzar's grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, eventually lived up to the light that he had. God gave him more light. It was hard, it was painful, but God did it, and Nebuchadnezzar responded. And it reminds me of a verse in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, something Jesus said. He says, to whom much is given, much will be expected. And that's true when it comes to money, talent, influence, or spiritual light. The more you've been given, the higher the expectations are for you. And Belshazzar was weighed by God, and he didn't live up to the expectations. So the question for us is, are you? Are you living up to the light that you have? If you attend this church regularly then you're being exposed to a lot of light. Man, you come here and you, we sing these songs about the greatness and faithfulness of God. and We gather around God's word and, and are exposed to who God is and what he's like and what his uh, expectations are for us. and how to, you, you rub shoulders with other people who know the Lord, so their testimonies and their stories you know, influence you and rub off on you. Man, that is a lot of light for you and I to be exposed to week after week through the ministry of this church. And so the question is, are you living up to the light that God's given you? Because God wants to give you more light. He's not going to give you more light until you live up to the light that you have. But he's going to hold you accountable for the light God's given you, those opportunities. 
Listen, I say this with all humility. One of the most spiritually dangerous things that people like you and me, Belshazzar, can do is to be surrounded by God's light and yet be closed off to it. To not listen, to not hear, to not let it sink in, to not act upon it. That was the indictment, wasn't it? Belshazzar, you knew about this. You knew better. And there's something that Peter says to uh, people in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. It might surprise you as to what he says about some people in the early church. Look what it says. He writes, It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Really? It would have been better for them just not to know because they knew it, they heard it, they saw it, and they still rejected it. Peter says, better for them not to even know because God's going to hold them accountable for turning their backs on the Lord even though they knew. And, you know, I get kind of tired sometimes, uh, maybe you've heard this, of people saying, you know, but uh, hey, I hear the gospel, and, you know, that Je- you know if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to go to hell. I, yeah. But what about that guy living on the island, you know, that never hears about Jesus? I mean, he never had a chance. He never had an opportunity. Are you telling me that, that if he dies out there by himself and he's never heard about God or the gospel, that God's going to condemn him to hell? Oh, I could never surrender to a God who would do something like that. And I just want to say, read the Bible. God is so full of mercy and grace. I am extremely confident God can figure out what to do with that fictitious guy on that fictitious island who hasn't heard about Jesus. I mean, Romans chapter 1, you can read it. Live up to the light that you have, no matter what that light is. God will give you more light. Maybe God will send a missionary from our church to that island. I don't know. But God's got his ways of getting his light to people. Don't, don't fret over, you know, what about that guy? I could never surrender to a God who'd send that guy to hell. Listen, we're talking about living up to the light that you have. You've heard the gospel. Uh, You've seen the way of the Lord. Uh, You've been exposed to his word. And as a result of that, God's going to hold you accountable for where you are and living up to the light that you have. Belshazzar never did that. The greater knowledge God gives you, the more accountable he holds you. Well, warning number two. We'll do this one quickly. It's always better to humble yourself before the Lord then wait for him to do it for you. We're learning that. Nebuchadnezzar, he learned it the hard way, right, by way of the barnyard. But, but we're learning in this book, it's always better to humble yourself before the Lord than to wait for him to do it for you. That's verse 22. Daniel says those exact words. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And man, this pride thing... It just keeps coming up over and over again, not only in Daniel, but throughout the Bible. And the, result, the reason it comes up so often is because to some degree, each and every one of us deal with this. We, we, we deal with, pride is so subtle and humility is so elusive that the scriptures just keep reminding us to deal with it the best way we can time and time again. Um, and humility is one of those qualities that 
about the time you think you're getting it. Like, hey, I'm becoming a lot more humble. You lose it, right? Don't, don't ever tell somebody that, by the way. It's a terrible compliment to pay someone. Hey, I really see you growing in your faith. You're so much more humble than you used to be. Oh, really? Tell me about that. Why would you say that? You know, it's like, oh, here I go again, right? Um, that's just the way it works. It's so, you can't become, how do you humble yourself? You can't do it directly. It's really hard. You, can't, you really can't do it directly. Humility has to be a byproduct of something else. And the only way you can really, you and I can really humble ourselves is to engage in uh, disciplines or habits that cultivate the soil of our hearts so that humility can grow organically and under the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you just can't, okay, 2023, I'm going to be more humble. All right, whatever. Not going to work. You have to, it's one of those qualities, it's so elusive, you have to engage in habits or disciplines that prepare your heart for the Lord to bring it about in your life. And yet the Bible talks so much about humbling ourselves. Remember the last words of Nebuchadnezzar? Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And I'm convinced that it's pride that keeps many of us Christians stuck where we are, not growing and flourishing in our faith, and we don't even sometimes recognize that as a part of our life, because it's so subtle. I like what theologian John Stott said, that at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy, our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. And certainly it was pride that was Belshazzar's undoing. Well, here's one of those references, and we'll close with this. Here's one of those references in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and in due time, the Lord will lift you up. Wow. I mean, that's not all that complicated to figure out. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and in due time, the Lord will lift you up. Do you hear what God is saying there? I mean, this is a tremendous promise when you stop to think about it. God says, here's the deal. If you'll work on humbling yourself, then I'll take care of the lifting you up part. In, due in my time, in my way, you, you take care of the humbling yourself part. I'll take care of the lifting you up part. But on the other hand, what we're learning in Daniel is that if you're more interested in the lifting you up part, then God will take care of the humbling part. And that's not nearly as pleasant. Ask Belshazzar. Ask Nebuchadnezzar. So wait a minute. So, so I don't have to promote myself? I don't have to make it all about me? I don't have to win every argument? I don't always have to get the last word? I, I don't have to do any of that? I don't have to, you know, pat myself on the back? I, I don't have to do any of that? And God says, oh, yeah, if you don't do any of that stuff, then I'll take, I'll, I'll take care of the lifting you up. I don't worry about that. Leave that in my hands. On the other hand, if you do that stuff, well, then I'll have to humble you. So the only way we can really humble ourselves is to engage in these habits, and there's so many of them. Uh, we can spend a whole sermon on them. Let me give you two real quick in, in closing. Uh, one, again, we're talking about humbling ourselves before the Lord, and you can't get at it directly. You kind of got to go indirectly. Uh, here's one way. Be thankful often and always. Cultivate gratitude in your heart because it's just... just, just Almost discipline, force yourself each day to thank the Lord for something, even in the difficult 
parts of life because gratitude is the soil in which humility grows. Because gratitude towards God is, is me expressing that I understand my life is a gift from Him. My talents, everything I have, it's all from Him. It, it's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. Any accomplishments, it's all because of Him. The very breath in our bodies, it, under, it helps us understand that everything is a gift. And the scriptures say in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. How do you do that, though? Because, I mean, it's good to give thanks in positive circumstances when prayers are answered and things are going the way you want them to go. You should give thanks to the Lord for that, but that doesn't create humility in your life. That's just sort of a natural expression of, thanks, Lord, you came through for me. That's why Paul says in this verse, give thanks, learn to give thanks in all circumstances, even when things don't go your way. You don't get the promotion. The prayer isn't answered the way you wanted it to be. You're disappointed. You're hurt. Discouraged. Learn to give thanks in those circumstances as well, because that'll, that'll build humility in your life. Here's how. When we start to grumble and we start to complain, what we're really saying to God is, I know better than you. My will's better than yours. I had a plan. Here's how I wanted it to go, and it didn't go according to plan. You messed it up, Lord. That's, that's the epitome of pride, isn't it? But when we learn to give thanks in all circumstances, even though I don't understand this, I don't like it, I wish it would go away, I wish it turned out differently, Lord, I am surrendering to you, and I'm just giving thanks that you're faithful and true. You haven't forgotten about me. You've got a purpose. You've got a plan for my life, and I just want to bow my knee to you and give thanks. Wow. Hey, now, now that's humbling yourself. That, that, that's going to bear some fruit of humility in and through your life. And then one more, real quick. And it's so simple, but... We get so busy and wrapped up in ourselves. Here it is. Look for opportunities to serve God and others. There are a lot of opportunities, but we just don't look for them all the time because in our pride, we're always thinking about our agenda, our stuff, our, you know, our feelings, all that sort of thing. But there are opportunities around each and every one of us in our church, in our home, in our workplace, in the community where we can serve God and others. You say, well, how does that relate to being humble? Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is talking about Jesus. And it says that Jesus, even though he was God, he humbled himself and became a servant. Isn't that something? You think about Jesus, the Son of God, who was also fully man. Even Jesus had to humble himself. How did he do that? By becoming a servant. Simple acts of service to others when done as unto the Lord, you got to do them as unto the Lord, those simple acts of service starve the pride in your life and cultivate humility. Just simple things. Even when you don't get credit, it's even better when you don't get credit. Just simple things. And you're, and you're plowing up the soil in your heart so that the seeds of humility can grow. That's a step towards humbling yourself. And what did God say? Humble yourself before the Lord. And in due time, I'll lift you up. You, you, you worry about the humbling yourself part. I remember this uh, event that happened about 25 years ago now. Um, 
And I really will close with this. Um, uh, 25 years ago, uh, Camel and I were going to this pastor's conference in Chicago. And it was at this big uh, hotel and ballroom in Chicago. And we were super excited about it because you know, everybody who was somebody was on the on the uh, schedule for speakers, you know, all the most popular pastors of the day. And, you know, all of us young pastors went, and we were like, you know, that's what we want to be when we grow up, you know, <laughs> like, like those guys. And uh, we stumbled into this uh, event, uh, again, 25 years ago. One of the guys on the, on the schedule of speakers was a very well-known pastor at that time, a guy named Warren Wearsby. Some of you might know that name. Others of you, he's, he's with the Lord now. But uh, 80s, 90s, Warren Wiersbe, man, prolific author, uh, very well-known Bible teacher on the radio, yeah, just you know, very well-respected, had a long, faithful ministry. And uh, I was really looking forward to hearing Warren Wiersbe speak at the conference. I'd never heard him live before. And so we're walking into this conference, okay, and the place is packed, and we're not late, but there's just so many people there, and... Um, standing room only. They're having to take chairs down and set, you know, chairs up for people to sit in the back. And so Camel and I walk in and uh, this uh, old bald guy uh, in the back, uh, <laughs> he seemed old to me then. <laughs> he doesn't seem as old now. But this old bald guy in the back is like, uh, hey folks, over here, here's some chairs over here. Um, uh, and, he's, and he's pulling chairs down and, and, and putting them in the back row so people could find a place to sit and so we're like I thought well, that's nice well guys hotel's got this covered so so we walk over there and uh, we take a seat and then I look up and I, I say to Kamala that's Warren Wearsby that's Warren Wearsby. he's scheduled to speak here, here in a few minutes and he's back here setting up chairs for people to, to be able to sit and listen and and be comfortable and you know I was, again I was a kid at that it was a long time ago Obviously, I never forgot that, that picture of this kind of superstar pastor, you know, just in the back, you know, shirt tail out, <laughs> putting chairs down so other people could be comfortable. Simple, simple act of service. But here's the power in that. So that pastor's conference, man, some of the greatest pastors in the world at the time were on the docket. I can't remember one sermon that was preached. I don't remember one thing anybody, including Warren Wearsby, said that night. But what do I remember? 25 years later, this guy putting chairs down, just humbling himself, being a servant. And it's really no more complicated than that. Man, claim that promise in your life. Humble yourself before the Lord, and in due time, he'll lift you up. He can do a lot better job of lifting you up than you can it's really unattractive when you and I try to lift ourselves up. Let God do that. And it's really a lot less painful to humble yourself than to get to a place where God has to do it for you.